it's only after things haven't gone back to normal after about, you know, five or 10 years that people suddenly start thinking, right, okay, it's time for real systemic structural change. And that is, I think, the the trend that that, um, that uh, led to the emergence of Corbynism and uh, of Sanders in, in the US. It is just this realization amongst many, many people that things are not going to go back to the way they were before the financial crisis, that actually it's big change or continuous stagnation and ultimately more um, more crisis. Yes, it is about finance becoming bigger, more systemically important, but it's also about the ways in which um, financial logics kind of come to govern the economy as a whole. Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Very happy to have you. So listen, we're now into July. We're now into what I've been talking about for the last several episodes. The brand new subscriber section soon to be launched on the website. Really excited about that. So for those of us who have mourned the passing of the print magazine, an institution on the left, it is sad. It is something to mourn. But Let us not fear, because now we have this new section on the website that's going to have exclusive content for subscribers. Those of you who have been supporting Counterpunch, you're going to have additional content. Those of you who have been on the fence about it, this is a great way to support Counterpunch, to support independent media, and also to get something great out of it. So please do consider a subscription to Counterpunch. Go to the website, do what you need to do, and make that happen. So, um... When you support Counterpunch, you're supporting exclusive content and great writers, uh, many of whom might not appear in your traditional mainstream left publications. And uh, so we're excited to do that. And I'm excited to speak with yet another uh, really talented journalist and author today. Grace Blakely is with us. Grace is a staff writer of Tribune Magazine. She is also the author of the brand new book, Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization. You can follow her on Twitter at Grace Blakely. Grace, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. 
Thanks so much for coming on, for writing this very important book. It's both eminently important and eminently readable. And I thought I'd use the word eminently twice, even though it's probably inappropriate. Um, <laughs> no, I think so, it was great. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I thought it went smooth as well. So here's my question to you, Grace. Let us begin with the broadest possible question to introduce us to this topic, financialization. It might be a word that many of us have heard before. Help us to understand what it means. Sure. So the definition I use is the increasing role of financial motives, financial markets, financial actors and financial institutions in the operation of the international and domestic economies. Now, effectively, what that means is um, the kind of, yes, the increasing um, size and importance of, uh, of banks and other financial institutions, but also the kind of penetration of the logic of finance into other areas of economic activity. And you can think of the logic of finance as basically of anything to do with kind of lending and investment. Um, so, uh, for example, corporations have become financialized and their governance strategies have become increasingly focused on um, financial markets and particularly on maximizing uh, share prices. When it comes to households, um, there's been a, a dramatic increase in, in household debt uh, in the most financialized economies in the period from the kind of 1980s onwards. Um, similar sorts of, uh, of of logics have penetrated the uh, the the way that the state works in in various different economies. Um, so, yes, it is about finance becoming bigger, more systemically important, but it's also about the ways in which um, financial logics kind of come to govern the economy as a whole. So the period that we're really talking about here that you focus on in the book is as uh, you having identified as sort of the origin of this process that the modern version that we're talking about is help us to understand this period. We're talking about Thatcherism in the UK, Reaganism in the US, the, the, the growth of the modern Wall Street and city of London that we're talking about. Give us the historical context. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, the period that I talk about, which is the kind of era of finance led growth, is um, is coterminous in the UK with uh, with with Thatcher's tenure. And um, although it continues beyond that, of course, and in the US um, with uh, with Reagan being elected. But it's a process that uh, precedes that that kind of juncture. Um, I think you can kind of disentangle the financialization as a process and I call finance-led growth, which is a kind of dominant uh, regime of, of organising the economy, which I think um, manifests itself from between 1980 financial crisis when it doesn't disappear, but um, it kind of becomes less all-encompassing. And we can talk about a little bit about what that means later. But really, as a process, financialization, um, you can find the the origins of it in the in the post-war period. Um, so in that period uh, from the kind of 50s, 60s, uh, where you had, you know, state intervention, um, much more powerful unions, um, it, you know, this kind of period that was called the golden age of capitalism, characterised by rising wages, low, low levels of inequality and kind of uh, fairly, um, a fairly kind of stable uh, economy. And that was obviously underpinned by the Bretton Woods system at the international level, which was this system of uh, capital account management and exchange rate pegging. That really served to kind of hem in the power of international finance, uh, but it was also um, supported by Keynesianism. Yeah, it was it was during this time really when you had these constraints placed, particularly on on capital mobility, um, that financial institutions, investors, really started to push against those constraints, and that's really where you can find the origins of of the process of financialization that really leads all the way up to the to the financial crisis of of, of two thousand and eight and. 
the the beginnings of this really come uh, when it comes to this question of of um, capital mobility. So obviously, capital mobility is constrained under Bretton Woods, and it's during the kind of fifties and sixties that you see the emergence of the euro dollar markets, which have now become very very important. Basically, a kind of offshore market for a particular currency, in this case dollars. And it was through this that uh, the investors were able to get around those those restrictions on capital mobility, and ultimately through this and a number of other processes, managed successfully to kind of undermine that system until it eventually collapsed, um, largely due to external circumstances. But when it does collapse, um, you then kind of see this this logic of financialization really manifest itself um, very strongly at both the, the global level, where you start to see the beginnings of a new era of what's called financial globalization, which is basically where um, capital movements begin to become much more important in driving globalization than, say, trade flows. Uh, and it's also when you start to see a lot of changes taking place um, uh, within domestic economies when it comes to regulation um, and tax and, uh, and various other forms of macroeconomic management. Um, and this obviously starts really in the US and the UK, prefigured by what happens in Chile, but then it spreads all around the world um, under you know what is usually called this this like you know logic of neoliberalism, uh, and I see neoliberalism as as kind of the word that describes the uh, you know regulatory architecture or the ideologies that underpin the emergence of finance led growth as a kind of um, you know a, a material reality as a as a um, as a set of structures that comes to underpin the global and and particularly certain very financialized domestic economies. It's really fascinating reading about uh, the process and the way that you describe it in the book. And one of the things that really struck me and that I felt would be important to address is is an idea that, that you bring out. Um, well, let me put it this way. You describe financialization and, and the processes and the architecture that you've just been outlining as a peculiarly Anglo-American growth model. And I felt that that was really important to highlight. So tell me why this model is peculiarly Anglo-American. What is it about the UK and the US as opposed to, say, other advanced capitalist countries? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it really hinges on the imperial role played by these countries in, in the global economy. Because financialization as a domestic process is a process that is driven by external capital in uh, in part. So basically, the most financialized economies are the ones where you see very high levels of, of private debt, so corporate and household debt, for example, rising asset prices. So a lot of that debt is driven into the purchase of assets. You can see this, for example, with the housing bubble, it's very clearly demonstrated, you know, um, financial deregulation means much higher mortgage lending, much higher mortgage lending means more people chasing the same uh, asset housing, and that drives up house prices in this kind of speculative bubble. Happens in other asset markets as well. But the thing that really marks out the most financialized economies is that this is a process that's driven by capital flowing in to those economies from everywhere else in the world. So these are countries with current account deficits. And this is a little bit complicated, but basically, you have a, a mirror image. Your current account is a mirror image of your financial account. So your current account me measures basically the difference between trade flows in and out, whereas your financial account um, measures flows into and out of your, your assets. Um, and uh, as a result, your, your trade balance is mirrored by 
the level of capital that is flowing into your assets as an economy. So if you have a current account surplus, it generally means that there's you know, economists talk about it in terms of savings, which isn't really right. But you can think about it in that sense. You can think that there's domestic savings that are being used to purchase assets abroad. Whereas if you have a current account deficit, it means you're effectively kind of indebted to the rest of the world and they are uh, making claims on your assets as a result. So you could think of that as housing, equities, bonds, whatever. Um, and obviously, the US and the UK have a large and what becomes a persistent current account deficit from the 1980s onwards, as do some other economies. Um, some economies in the southern eurozone, for example, are also characterized by these dynamics. And effectively, this means that uh, the asset bubbles that are kind of inflated in these economies come to suck in capital from the rest of the world, which acts as a kind of mirror image of the imperialism that was described by Lenin. Lenin obviously talks about the way in which um, kind of firms in the core, this is the classic Marxist understanding of imperialism, is that firms in the, the imperial core invest in inverted commas abroad, thereby um the earnings that are generated by those companies abroad are re, uh, repatriated to the imperial core and it, um, it kind of skews the process of development that happens in those countries. This is a kind of mirror image of that in the sense that not only is that process underway, so you've, you've got this, this process of imperialism um, with large multinational corporations kind of uh, sucking value out of the global south, but then you also have the process of even the uh, the capital that is generated in the global south, in, in well throughout the globe, throughout the uh, the world system. Actually, this isn't a process that's just confined to the global south. It also happens in in Germany, where there's a big current account surplus. But mainly, it's China and a couple of other um, emerging in inverted commas economies, um, where that capital is kind of sucked into asset markets in the global north because of the very high returns that these economies boast largely because they're in the process, this process of kind of financialized asset price inflation. Um, literally the other day, um, the I think it was the Federal Reserve Bank of New York released a, a paper looking at the impact that these inflows of capital had had on the American economy and finding, you know, very similar things, basically, that this had flowed into uh, non-productive assets and kind of skewed the, um, the the incentives for investment for um, for domestic firms and domestic investors and had therefore constrained the productivity of the US economy. So yeah, this is a kind of, this is a, a process that definitely is, I would suppose it's catalyzed by the shift towards neoliberalism, particularly in the US and the UK, although in many other economies at the same time. But it's really reinforced and it goes on for so long because of the role of international capital in the context of financial globalization. And obviously, the importance of the dollar as the global reserve currency is really what underpins America's ability to do this. And it's also the UK's former imperial role that allows, um, that allows the British economy to act in this way as well. So firstly, obviously, the, role, the modern role of the city of London. But secondly, the fact that the UK as a kind of historic empire has a lot of international power and has a lot of assets abroad. UK investors have a lot of assets abroad. You know, the attractiveness of owning British assets is also uh, is also increased. So, yeah, I mean, you really can't understand financialization without understanding imperialism um, and those dynamics of uh, of capital mobility, which really underpin this process at the international level. Yeah, I mean, imperialism is precisely what I was getting at in thinking about what is it that really connects the US and the UK in this way? And what, 
how should we understand financialization in, in some of these processes? And, and imperialism, I think, is the right way to think about it. So then I, I guess the logical question to follow that would be, if we think about, say, Lenin's formulation saying that imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, in a sense, financialized capitalism is an even higher stage of imperialism, isn't it? Can you have a modern so-called imperial uh, system without financialization? I'm not sure that you even could. When Lenin was formulating his ideas, he was doing so at like a, at the same kind of time that um, Rudolf Hilferding was talking about this process of financialization. And these two things were really seen as quite um, closely intertwined. Well, I mean, actually, there's three process that, processes that are, are closely intertwined. Here. It's financialization, the centralization of capitalism, so monopoly, basically, and imperialism. And these things are interwoven in, in the following way. Effectively, as capitalism develops, the costs of starting and maintaining a business that produces commodities increases. So you need more upfront investment to be able to start and maintain your business. Where does this capital come from? It can't all come from capitalists themselves up, up to some past some point, sorry. You get the need for external financing. Who provides external financing? Banks. So Hilferding says, right, banks will become increasingly systemically important in the financial system, as will stock markets and uh, other institutions that kind of agglomerate capital for the purposes of investment. And this will in turn reinforce the centralization of capitalism, so the rise of, of monopolies. Uh, and ultimately, you'll get to a, a point where you have these really significant um, monopolies that, uh, that undertake production of commodities supported by big financial institutions um, that, you know, work alongside them and support them in, in accessing investment. These big banks and these big monopolies will serve to deepen processes of imperialism, because on the one hand, you have the, uh, the monopolies that are producing a lot of stuff abroad. So they are, you know, undertaking low value added activities in the imperial periphery, where labor is cheap, where they can you know, generate a lot of surplus value that they can then repatriate to the uh, to the core and at the same time you have these big um, financial institutions which often benefit effectively from from um, international flows of capital and often benefit from capital flows out of the global south today this is something that takes place um, often mediated by tax havens so you'll have um, uh, you know profits that are generated in the global south through whatever means, um, often uh, being deposited in tax havens and then managed by financial institutions in you know, the city of London or, or Wall Street. And um, there's actually, I can't remember where this stat is from, but I think it's from a, a tax justice group saying that Sub-Saharan Africa loses three times more each year in capital flight than it gains in development aid because all this money is flowing. You know, we, even the capital that is generated in these states that isn't repatriated by the monopolies ultimately ends up finding its way back into asset markets in the global north, often via tax havens. Um, so, yeah, these processes are really closely um, closely interrelated. And it's interesting that Lenin, Hilferding, Bukharin were all writing about this stuff in you know, in and around 1917, 1918, um, which was a time where you would have also seen these processes quite starkly. This was the kind of gilded age or the, the lead up to the gilded age of capitalism um, associated with, you know, massive monopoly power, with the growth of financial institutions, etc. And obviously, 
you know, overt imperialism. Um, and it was, I suppose, these processes were kind of moderated in the in the period after the Second World War. And you had this corporatist, social democratic setup, um, and it's really been since the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s that this process has returned and returned more strongly than really it, it has a it has existed at any other point in history. And obviously, that is what leads us up to the financial crisis and the economic malaise that we have experienced ever since. And one of the things that comes to mind in hearing you describing all of that is the is is the term neocolonialism, because really neocolonialism doesn't exist without the process that you're describing. And so while, you know, Bukharin and Lenin and uh, Hilferding and others may have written about it, you know, a hundred plus years ago, Walter Rodney was also writing about this process from the perspective of the global south and how, you know, the famous book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And that same process that you're describing is exactly exactly what he was talking about. Yeah, and also Kwame Nkrumah, uh, the independence leader of Ghana, wrote a book called Neocolonialism, the highest stage of imperialism, I think. Um, so yeah, you know, neocolonialism is and always has been uh, a very important part of this process. And I think it's been particularly important for what was, you know, the kind of third worldist movement in describing the ways in which these countries were being subjugated um, both by um, multinational corporations, big financial institutions, but also continuing to be subjugated by core powers, often former colonial powers. Um, there is a really great book by Nick Jackson called Poisoned Wells, which looks at oil production in sub-Saharan Africa. And it looks at the um, extremely intimate relationships between the former colonial metropoles and independence governments. And, and the one that always sticks in my mind is is um, the French government, which uh, which retained such close relationships with many kind of dictators in um, in sub-Saharan Africa for the purposes of oil extraction of maintaining their access to oil. That uh, it was said that uh, yeah, kind of French um, politician or, or or intelligence operative had in his desk drawer signed um, requests for intervention from all of the, the leaders of these countries that he could simply write the date on if, um, if there was ever a coup or an attempt to overthrow these, uh, these, um, these leaders uh, in order to safeguard uh, oil interests. And you see this, of course, throughout the world with, you know, uh, with, um, with the UK and Iran, with you know, loads of different economies. Um, so, yeah, neocolonialism in both its imperialistic forms and imperialism, I suppose, is a more kind of economistic understanding, but also it's very overt political forms uh, continues all beyond the end of, uh, of formal colonialism. So speaking of neocolonialism, though, you really can't discuss neocolonialism and and the processes that you're describing without talking about debt, because debt has really become one of the most potent tools of neocolonialism, and debt really figures centrally in all of the processes that we're talking about. So before we go to the break, I just want to uh, finish the first half of our conversation on this question. Talk to me about debt as it relates to financialization. How has debt become <clears throat> this instrument of profit generation and, as I was just alluding to, control? How has this happened and how does debt differ today from, say, how we would have understood it in capitalism historically? Yeah, so debt has become increasingly important both for kind of sustaining 
capitalist accumulation and also for, I suppose, kind of covering over some of the problems and contradictions that have arisen from um, the kind of growth model that has been pursued, particularly in, uh, in you know, countries like the US and the UK since the 1980s. So firstly, of course, you know, talking about those, you know, that point made by Hilferding about um, the scale of capitalist production and the needs for external financing. That has obviously been very obvious in recent years when um, you've had uh, big and valuable IPOs by all the tech companies, for example, um, or, uh, you know, you're just looking at the financing needs of some of the biggest um, international monopolies. They're absolutely huge. And the scale of capital that these institutions are able to accrue, partly from their result, from their relationships with financial institutions, makes them pretty unassailable. So it kind of insulates them from from competition. And a lot of the way in which they get to that point is through debt. Now, obviously, a lot of those tech companies that have just um, that are now in the in the pandemic extremely valuable, more valuable than ever. Many of them weren't even profitable until you know five, ten years ago. Prior to that, obviously, there was a lot of equity financing going into them, but they also needed to borrow a lot. So, the dynamics of uh, of the, of, of capitalist accumulation are increasingly reliant upon support from the financial sector, partly because of the scale of production, but partly also because of the need to monopoly. If you're able to get cheap debt, you can do things like buy up other other corporations um, or expand into other sectors, um, edging out your competitors in a way that kind of consolidates your, your monopoly position. And doing so is increasingly important today just to be able to generate profits in the context of kind of, uh, of, kind of declining profitability that we've been seeing really since, I suppose, you know, the, the 60s and 70s. Um, so, yeah, you know, capitalist accumulation on the one hand, that's that's a big thing. But also, and I think probably the thing that the, the more politically interesting role that has been played by debt is in supporting demand, uh, particularly demand amongst uh, consumers. So obviously, um like the period of financialization is associated with falling wage growth and with a decoupling of, of wages from productivity, which was kind of guaranteed by the corporatism and, and strong labor movement of the post-war period in the global north. Um, as soon as that relationship breaks down, you start to see wage growth slowing. And obviously, that presents potential issues in terms of the, uh, the disjuncture that emerges between constant investment and the increasing scale of production on the one hand and closure or shrinking of, um, of final markets um, for those those goods, if you're thinking about a lot of those goods being destined ultimately for uh, for consumption. Um, and obviously, you know, there are different dynamics there when you're thinking about investment goods and consumption goods, but consumer markets are still important. Now, a big way in which that was dealt with, that economic problem, but also the political problem of if you want this model to be sustainable, you need people to feel like they're getting better off. Um, was through the massive expansion in consumer lending that took place uh, from the 1980s onwards. And this was basically facilitated by the deregulation of banks. So it, 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 this was the point at which banks gained the ability effectively to create debt, not entirely without end, but almost without end. Um, and they did so primarily, they led to consumers who um, used that debt to buy housing, and that housing then increased in value. And then as they felt wealthier, they were able to release some of that equity, take out more debt against the value of their houses or just, you know, credit cards or whatever, auto loans, student loans, etc. And yet to a point of kind of what's described as privatized Keynesianism, 
which is effectively this idea that whereas once the state would step in to kind of backstop demand, um, today you increasingly see the role of the, like debt playing a role um, in uh, supporting private consumption in order to uh, to deal with those those same issues. Uh, and you know, I could talk more, and perhaps we could talk about it after the break about the role that um, that sovereign debt plays at the international level in uh, in keeping um, in really reinforcing those imperialistic relationships that govern the world economy. And we're certainly seeing the role that that is is playing now in the coronavirus crisis, when you know, basically, a huge number of countries in the world are on the on the brink of, of a, a massive sovereign debt crisis, and they're having to choose between buying the medical equipment they need to support their populations and defaulting on their debts. So debt is really, really central and really, really important. Um, and I suppose it, it's both a way of, of kind of supporting the needs of capital accumulation, but also overcoming some of those contradictions associated with, um, with finance-led growth. And just to follow up on that point, there's one other, there's one other side to the debt question that I think is relevant and particularly under the current conditions and that is corporate debt corporate debt has exploded and this is particularly in the last 20 years and this is a different form of debt and has a different function in a financialized capitalist system so can you speak briefly about corporate debt what that is and why that's so important yeah so corporate debt is really part of that first issue that I was talking about which is um, debt that's used to support capitalist accumulation. Um, so uh, when you're talking about external financing for firms, that can either be kind of equity financing, so it can be investment, or it can be debt financing. Um, and debt financing has come to take on an increasingly important role for some firms. And this is the really interesting thing is that a lot of the firms that were able to access lots of cheap debt have been able to access lots of cheap debt for quite a while now, have become huge monopolies that are almost completely unassailable and have huge pools of previous earnings, meaning that they don't necessarily need to take out debt, even though a lot of them still do. So those monopolies have you know, a relatively um, high amount of, of corporate savings relative to their debts. But it's all the other corporations um, that are facing, you know, that have extremely high um, corporate debt levels and often unsustainable levels of corporate debt. Um, and that's particularly obvious uh, when it comes to some of the, the the smaller, weaker corporations that have um, that have many of them have become what's called kind of Ponzi firms over the course of the the period since the financial crisis. And effectively, what that means is that because debt has been so cheap, because interest rates have been so low, and because quantitative easing has pushed lots of money into corporate bonds, um, these firms they should have gone under. But they've been able to uh, avoid the kind of shortarian process of creative destruction by taking out lots of debt. And now they're only just able to repay the interest on that debt. They can't really ever pay back the, the principal, the amount they've borrowed. So they're just kind of, you know, continuing along in this like walking dead state. Pandemic is really threatening a lot of these firms. We're going to see huge numbers of corporate defaults over the course of this pandemic, many of which are defaults that should have happened five, 10 years ago. So corporate debt obviously plays an important role um, in, in supporting monopolies um, and particularly in supporting their, their efforts at expansion. So, you know, allowing them to undertake mergers and acquisitions, but also doing things like buy back their own shares, which obviously um, encourages investment to flow into these firms. 
is also playing an increasingly important role in just keeping all the other firms alive. Most of these firms cannot compete with these huge international monopolies that increasingly dominate almost all markets. Uh, And so they're increasingly reliant on debt just to be able to get by. And obviously, that's a big part of the reason why we've had such low interest rates. Um, Well, we've had declining interest rates really for kind of since the the noughties. so, yeah, debt has become really, really important, but it's also become a massive source of instability because when you have corporate balance sheets this fragile. It only takes a tiny drop in earnings until suddenly you have this swathe of defaults, which can threaten the, the stability of the financial system and end up in a financial crisis. And this is actually what a lot of people are worried about at the moment, um, because you've got a lot of collateralized corporate debt in the same way that mortgage debt was collateralized in the um, in the period before the financial crisis. And you, these collateralized loan obligations that are formed on the back of, of often quite high yield, so quite risky corporate debt, are no way near as systemically important as, say, um, you know, asset-backed securities were in the period before the financial crisis, but are still potentially quite a significant source of financial instability. Oh, the wonderful structured investment vehicle, collateralized debt obligation, mortgage-backed security. Boy, we love these exotic instruments. Alphabet soup of, uh, of, yeah, crazy financial instruments. So um, it's very fascinating. Let's take a quick break. Um, On the other side of the break, I want to finish up some of these ideas and see how they translate into our political uh, reality and the political dynamics that we're, well, that we're all living through now. So uh, stick with us on the other side of the break. I'll continue the conversation with Grace Blakely. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means. It's equal rights for every man, regardless of his strength. So don't let no one fool you, Joshua said. Listen as I tell you, Joshua said. No man are better than none. Socialism is love between man and man. Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and would you believe me? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is people pulling together. Would you believe me? Love and togetherness. That's what it means. Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes, saying he's got a lot to lose. Don't want to hear about sufferer at all. One man have too many, while too many have too little. Socialism don't stand for that, don't stand for that at all. Socialism is love for your brothers. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sisters. Socialism is Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. 
Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sisters. Do you believe me? People pulling together. Love and togetherness. That's what it means. Socialism is love for your brothers. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Grace Blakely. Again, the book, you got to get, you got to get your hands on it. This is a book to give as a gift. It's uh, it's so readable and really on such an important subject that often seems a bit dense and maybe difficult to enter into the book, Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization. Grace is on Twitter at Grace Blakely. You should follow her there. So Grace, we were talking about uh, debt and some of these other um, aspects of the financialized world that we're living in now, but we also have to pay attention to how these processes uh, that we've been describing have impacted our politics and our political reality. So here we are, I think uh, the UK and the US uh, understand this phenomenon at a very deep level at this point, the political crisis that that we're facing now. How has financialization, in your mind, these processes, how have they brought us to the, well, let's, let's, let's just call it a tenuous political situation that we're in now in the US and the UK? Yeah. So, I mean, firstly, and most obviously, um, finance-led finance growth is a, a model of growth that is uniquely prone to crises. So the dynamics of the accumulation of, of corporate and personal debt combined with um, financial globalization, make certain economies very vulnerable to financial crises. Now, yes, there's the 2008 financial crisis to demonstrate that, but there's also all the uh, the crises that took place, you know, the Japanese crisis, the, um, the crisis in, uh, in, in Asian markets in the 1990s, the tech bubble, um, the crisis in, in housing markets in the UK in the early, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. Now, this is a, a, a mode of capitalism, a model of capitalism that is uniquely susceptible to financial crises of the kind of Minskyan kind, where you basically get um, uh, lots of debt, lots of capital being driven into speculative purchases of assets that go up in value, creating a price of asset price inflation, which then reaches its peak and is followed by a period of deflation, potentially quite severe debt deflation where the falling value of, of assets increases the relative weight of, uh, of people's debts. Um, and Japan has been in the post, um, you know, bubble bursting malaise since the 1990s. And the US and the UK, Spain, Ireland uh, have been in that, in that, uh, that phase of their growth since the financial crisis. Um, and, there are some other economies that have, since the uh, the financial crisis, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, for example, experienced similar dynamics of rising personal debt, rising house prices, and current account deficits. Um, so, yeah, this is a kind of model that is uniquely characterized by quite severe and frequent crises. Um, and that obviously has very significant implications for politics. I think particularly the kinds of crisis that are followed by periods of stagnation 
are the ones that generate the, the most significant political instability and that reduce support for the status quo. Because it's all very well in the middle of crisis to say, um, you know, oh, this, you know, undermine support for capitalism. But most people in the middle of a crisis are thinking, right, how do we just buckle down and wait for things to get back to normal? It's only after things haven't gone back to normal, after about, you know, five or 10 years that people suddenly start thinking, right, okay, it's time for real systemic structural change. And that is, I think, the the trend that that, um, that uh, led to the emergence of Corbynism and uh, of Sanders in, in the US. It is just this realization amongst many, many people that things are not going to go back to the way they were before the financial crisis, that actually it's big change or continuous stagnation and ultimately more um, more crisis. So there's that, which has definitely had an impact on politics. The other kind of longer term trend is, and this was um, this was done much more by design by the people who uh, who really uh, supported this model to begin with. So particularly Thatcher and Reagan, is what happens to class identity when you expand asset ownership, particularly what happens to class identity when you make lots of people homeowners. Now, obviously, before uh, the 1980s, you had much lower levels of home ownership. Um, in in the US and the UK, much more people renting, um, many you know social renters in in the UK. And it was only after you had this massive deregulation of the financial system that home ownership increased so substantially because so many more people could get access to mortgages. And what that did is it really kind of, I mean, it, you know, it really undermined that distinction between labour and capital, which is is based on ownership of the means of production, so ownership of productive assets of which housing is not one, but it's still significant that people, that a lot of people are made into asset owners and therefore have incentives that are in many ways much more aligned with those of capital than they are with the rest of labor. Now, this is, of course, just thinking about house prices, not thinking about wage relationships, not thinking about public services, et cetera. But it's still significant. Have alongside that the liberalization of, of private pensions and the um, massive increase in individual participation in stock markets. And at that point, you're like, right, okay, well, actually, a lot of working people now have now own a tiny part of the means of production. They own some um, some portion of uh, of productive capital. So what does that do objectively to kind of the class relationship? And that is really, you know, these changes, the creation of this class of mini capitalists who own assets, some of which are productive, um, really changes and shifts the uh, the dynamics of um, of of class, but also of uh, electoral politics, because a lot of these people are very um, attached to the maintenance of this model of finance-led growth because they are becoming so rich on the back of it because their houses are, are increasing in value so much. And that is really what underpins the period of stability for that neoliberal consensus between 1980 and 2007. It's these you know, these, this newly created class of mini capitalists siding with capital to say, let's keep things as they are. Now, the big question is, what are these people doing when, you know, the, the constant increases in the value of their assets is not guaranteed? But also, what's everyone else doing now that young people can't get access to mortgages as easily as they, as easily as they once did, and therefore themselves maybe can't get on the housing ladder, maybe aren't earning enough to be able to um, invest in stock markets in a way that would kind of uh, generate them much wealth and which are always look, looking at the potential for another big crisis that will decimate their savings. So this 
these changes really did shift class and therefore um and therefore you know politics more broadly really very substantially um and now we're kind of in this period where that process seems to have halted and maybe even gone into reverse but no one's quite sure how things are going to pan out no one's quite sure what these mini capitalists what their political allegiances are going to be are they going to side with the left and say yes we need systemic transformation of our political and economic systems or are they going to side with the right and say you know if we can just keep immigrants out and shut down our borders or whatever else then maybe we can sustain this model for just a little bit longer it's interesting that you brought up uh corbyn and sanders um and for for very different reasons we have to be i think um you know sort of sober in our analysis of what Corbyn and Sanders really represented because at least speaking in the US context Sanders and Sandersism has been pretty thoroughly repudiated. I think we understand the generational divide why young people are attracted to uh you know progressive ideas, progressive politics, but the United States uh even more so than the UK is a deeply reactionary country. Our politics are deeply reactionary. We've seen that play out throughout this current election cycle. We saw it in the last election cycle as well and then of course the 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 broader question here about what it means for a an entire generation to sort of grow up under the conditions that you've been describing that's what breeds the kind of fascistic politics that has really uh made itself present um at least since 2016 so my question to you then really is is about the impact on the let's call it the political horizon of possibilities here, because on the one hand, Corbyn is out, Sanders is out, and much more right-wing, much more reactionary alternatives have been ascendant. So what does that tell us, Grace? That's a very good point. And what I think it tells us is basically that conditions, material conditions are shifting, um, and people's perceived self-interest is shifting. That is what ultimately underpinned the emergence of this moment to begin with. But that the way that that pans out is far from certain. So it definitely doesn't you know, necessarily benefit the left. What we know is that there is um, a massive decline in support for the status quo. So in things remaining as they are, as I was saying, the question then is whether or not people think, you know, do things need to change according to the vision of the left or do they need to change according to the vision of the right? Now, of course, the thing that the right has on its side is the fact that the entire establishment is going to side with fascists over socialists, even a very moderate form of social democracy. You know, we saw in in Brazil, in the US, in the UK, even that even though capital is maybe a bit skeptical about the more kind of economically nationalistic instincts of people like Trump, they are always going to be willing to side with him over any even moderate social democrat. Uh, so that means you have the media, you have huge amounts of money, you have you know everything that uh, is needed to win an election um, falling onto the side of the right, which obviously makes the left in a much more difficult position. And it really highlights some of the weaknesses uh, of the left that existed when we went into this moment. And primarily, you know, the weakness that we had was that yes, things were shifting, and there was going to be a lot more widespread support for a left electoral project. But the social forces that usually underpin socialism and which act as a kind of counter power to the uh, material and ideological power 
um, that the right has a you know has so much um, has so much of. They just didn't exist in the same way because they'd been decimated by 40 years of neoliberalism. So the trade union movement, um, you know, social movements uh, that were that were that had a clear kind of um, electoral or political focus, um, community organisations that could, you know, that were kind of the foundation of working class communities and could support um, political engagement. All of these forms of, you know, what neoliberal sociologists call social capital kind of links between people uh that that form them that allow people to form themselves into groups uh, had been eroded by this kind of very ind- individualistic consumeristic financialized model um and also by you know active attempts by the state to disempower the labor movement um and i think that process was probably maybe more accelerated in I don't know actually it's probably accelerated in different ways actually in the US and the UK because in the UK the labor movement's been really quite severely you know destroyed by Thatcher whereas in the US um, I think you still have pockets of um, of labor militancy um, which you know is, is not well I mean is, is less the case in the UK but in the UK you know the labor party as a a party infrastructure that exists outside of elections that has members that can decide on policy does exist even if it is you know generally cartelized and used to to uh against the left rather than for it and that obviously made a difference in the ways in which the Corbyn and Sanders projects played out although ultimately basically to the same effect in the end so i think really the the challenge that that the left has if it is going to use this moment um where, you know, one thing or another, nationalism or socialism, socialism or barbarism, let's say, is going to happen, is that we now need to focus our energies, yes, yes, to an extent on electoral politics. And I think what's great about the US context is that you're now seeing all these, you know, brilliant, brilliant socialists being elected to state senate and governorships and all these sorts of things. Um, so yes, on electoral politics, but also on building up the progressive movement as a whole, the socialist movement as a whole. And that means supporting trade unions. It means, um, you know, reinvigorating social movements and encouraging those social movements to engage with much more um, constructive projects rather than kind of protest politics that we were so familiar with um, uh, in the in the neoliberal period. Um, and it really means, you know, building back up forms of solidarity that have been decimated by the individualism of neoliberalism. I think it's an open question, the extent to which the left gains from the kind of electoral inroads that you're talking about, because it's certainly true that uh, several, let's call it socialist-ish politicians have been elected, obviously, uh, in the wake of Sanders in 2016 and, you know, all the talk about AOC and people like this. But uh, as somebody who um, is deeply skeptical of any Uh, let's call it entry into the reactionary politics of the Democratic Party in the United States. Um, I think it's an open question, the actual utility of uh, having a senator here or, well, we don't even have senators, a congressperson here or a state representative there, because, you know, there is, and I guess this is my question to you, there is a tremendous amount of energy that it takes to put into those sorts of campaigns. This is one of the things that a especially young people are learning the hard way right now in the post Sanders period that the come down from that after all of that energy was put into that, it's hard. 
It's hard to take and it's hard to come back from. And the question is whether or not electoral politics is really is the road to the kind of socialist transformation that we're talking about. You argue in the book uh, for an electoral coalition. I don't think anybody would disagree with that, but it also raises the question, a coalition of what? Because working people and the working class has shown itself to be deeply divided on these questions that we're talking about. Uh, in the UK, Brexit and the so-called uh, take, uh, take back control idea in the US, make America great again, right? Many working class people resonate, these ideas resonate for them and the racism and all of the attendant sort of fascist, uh, fascistic politics, of course, agrees with a lot of our history in both of these countries. So the question is, what is the utility of electoral politics here? And is an electoral coalition within the working class even possible without transformation? Yeah, so I will start, I start with the first part of that question. I think, you know, really, the question that we face is not, is electoral politics, is there a, a, a theoretical way in which we can envision the road to electoral politics, um, leading to not socialism, but potentially removing some of the obstacles that exist to the, um, really, to the kind of building up of power of, of working people and the, the re-emergence of an actual you know, working class movement of actual socialist movement. Um, and I think, you know, there are definitely ways that we can see that happening theoretically. Um, obviously, there are a lot of obstacles to that. But I think the question we then face is, is there any other option? Now, obviously, either you have democratic socialism, which is a democratic route aimed at using the apparatus of the state in all its, you know, um, you know a state that is undoubtedly um run in by and for capital is it is there a way in which you can envision using that state apparatus to a remove some of the impediments to socialist organizing that have been imposed by successive governments you know throughout the history of capitalism and, and b to kind of promote the power of working people uh, through you know these kind of non-reformist reform type uh, interventions that aren't really aimed at kind of fixing in inverted commas problems created by capitalism but are really aimed at um increasing the the power and um, and ability to organize of the working classes um, so there's obviously a, a a road that you can see where that could happen theoretically the question then is what are the alternatives and obviously aside from the democratic route the electoral route you have um revolutionary routes and i think you know we have to ask ourselves which seems most feasible now obviously there are a lot of issues associated with and ralph Miliband in the uk has written extensively about the problems of uh socialist organizing in and around the capitalist state um and this is you know this is only really something that i think you can tackle um it, it's not necessarily an issue that you you gain a lot from attempting to deal with theoretically. There's a huge amount of theoretical discussion about the nature of the capitalist state, but this is actually something that you really have to think about uh, in terms of strategy and in terms of organising. How might uh, the, you know, how might there emerge a positive reinforcing cycle between the exercise of electoral power by a government that is uh, really porous to the demands of um, a party, a mass membership party, largely composed of socialists. Now, the other option is, right, we do away with all that. We say, do away with traditional parties, build up a revolutionary party that aims to um, 
foment work a revolution, ultimately get to the point where we can have a revolution and then we overthrow the state. Now, to me, and I think, you know, the big reason that people have decided to take the democratic and electoral route in recent years is because the state, the power of the state has become so entirely overwhelming that the revolutionary route doesn't seem possible in the global north. It's eminently possible in the global south, which is obviously why a lot of people say that is where um, the impetus to overthrow capitalism will ultimately come from. And I don't actually disagree with that. I think that is probably true. Um, but obviously, you know, there is no way of being able to overthrow the American state without infiltrating it first. So the question then, of course, is like, do you use the Democratic Party? Do you try and create another revolutionary party? It's very difficult to do that in a majoritarian electoral system. So, you know, these are all very difficult questions. But again, I don't think they're necessarily questions that we gain from by asking, by trying to answer theoretically. I think we need to think strategically about the um, cracks that exist within the political institutions that we might seek to infiltrate and that exist within the capital capitalist class more generally that we might seek to take advantage of, of strategy rather than abstract theory about you know what the capitalist state looks like. Although of course that is important. I mean, really, we don't it seems to me like we don't as socialists really have any other option other than trying to in one way or another, infiltrate the capitalist state in order to facilitate um, our organising and, and shift the balance of power between labour and capital. But I know that that's something that a lot of people disagree with. And, you know, I think fair enough <laughs> if they, you know, there are there are legitimate differences of, of strategy on that on that front. I wonder about I wonder about this issue in the context of what you've been writing about, because everything that you're saying is true. Everything that laid the groundwork for the political conditions that we're living through now, uh, you're describing in the book. But that then raises the question, and I think it's uh, it's it's probably maybe somewhat more unique to the to the U.S. at this moment, but certainly true generally. And, and that is uh, the comparison between the effort for, say, something like Sanders and the Sanders campaign and the uh, Black Lives Matter uprising that we're watching happening right now. Uh, only one of those two has impacted in a lasting way policy. Only one of those two has actually really changed the national conversation. And only one of those two is really impacting what the left is doing Doing right now. And that's the Black Lives Matter uprising, not the Sanders movement. So I'm not saying that to denigrate the idea of uh, being involved in electoral politics, but it, I, it this is something that the left, because it is so marginalized and so weakened uh, in the West, has to grapple with. How do we build power? And is power actually going to be built by infiltrating the state, as you've described? I'm obviously a bit skeptical of that. Yeah, I think that's a completely legitimate strategic case to make is that in the case of the US where you don't have a party apparatus that you can perhaps attempt to organize in and um, and, uh, and I suppose take over, uh, then, you know, maybe the best way to shift policy is to, is to you know, purely go down that route of, of protest and of organizing in the streets and maybe then take that forward into organizing within workplaces um, in order to, you know, basically take down capitalism from the inside. My issue with that is that, you know, it's this thing of you may not be interested in the state, but the state is interested in you. Like as soon as you get a threat to the interests of capital that emerges um, in civil society, 
if you don't have a sympathetic state, and it doesn't have to be a socialist state, it has to be a state that is porous enough to the demands of socialists that it cannot use the full force of state power to repress these demands. Because otherwise, you know, you're just going to get killed. And this is something that is actually happening, of course, in the US now. Like, yes, Black Lives Matter has been amazing, but people are being killed, right? And if that happens um, to a large enough extent, then ultimately it threatens the lives of socialists and obviously the, the coherence of the socialist movement as a whole. So, you know, in many ways, it's kind of it's kind of a cul-de-sac for us to be asking, should we do electoral politics or should we be organising outside of, uh, of electoral politics? Obviously, I think we have to do both. I think this is something that there is much more consensus on in the UK now, where you know, there is a Labour Party that you once can still organise within, which makes a big difference. But also people realise after the Corbyn moment, just the massive uh, constraints and problems associated with focusing all your energy on electoral politics and failing to build up um, social forces outside of of electoral politics. Um, So, you know, like, I think it seems it seems pretty clear to me that we need to be doing both, because if you are just organizing within the state, you're not going to have the social forces out of the state that will be able to support you in your battle against the state. But if you're just organizing on the streets then the state is just going to come down on you with the full force of its power and ultimately kill everyone. So, you know, maybe that seems like a bit of a kind of (laughs) simplistic way of understanding it. But it just suggests to me that there is there is a middle ground here that needs to be. and, and indeed that we are all, uh, I think that, that most socialists, at least in the UK, I don't know how it is in the US, agree that, that we need to be um, we need to be pursuing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that we necessarily have a consensus on this question. It's something that we've been debating for a long, long time and uh, certainly not something that's going to be resolved anytime soon. But it it raises the question and I will only I'm not going to you know beat a dead horse too much here, but um, it raises the question of uh, time. In all of this, because uh, uh, the left, the emerging left, particularly comprised of of younger people, is um, unique in the sense that it has to grapple with the existential threat that faces the entire planet, and that is the ticking time bomb of climate change. And climate change, I think, uh, certainly if you believe some of the scientific, uh, you know, consensus, climate change puts a clock on all of this. And it puts a real clock on what the left has to do and the sort of the, uh, the task before us. And I think it raises the question that you and I are just discussing here with ever more urgency. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not, we're not stopping climate change now. I think we can all agree on that. Climate change is here. Well, climate breakdown is here. Um, and it is already impacting predominantly the global South. And it will continue to do so as we continue to pump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and do all the other things that we're doing to disrupt our ecological systems. So we're not going to avoid it. But obviously, the longer we leave it before we um, before we actually do something significant about it, the far greater the existential threat that we face. And of course, the big thing, the big thing with regards to time is the existence of these kind of ecological tipping points. Um if you look at the environment from the perspective of complex systems, and there are these feedback loops that exist within all our ecological systems that keep the world in a state of broad equilibrium, and we've been disturbing those, whether it's you know the water cycle, the nitrogen cycle, uh, you know um, the uh, animal habitats, and also the 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 amount of carbon dioxide we're pumping into the atmosphere. And on that last point, you obviously have 
lots of carbon sinks in the world. So oceans, tundra, forests that are, we are destroying at the same rate as we're pumping um, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, you suddenly have a, a massive and immediate increase in the amount of CO2 that's going into the atmosphere because it's not being absorbed by these natural sinks. But that, I think, is the real deadline that we face. But it, 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 yeah, it's it's not far away, basically. I mean, some people are already saying that we're already past it. So if we don't want to basically destroy half the planet, and there are some really scary scenarios that are laid out in this Hothouse Earth report that talks about these these tipping points, um, then time is of the essence. The question, of course, is how on earth do we organise in that short space of time? And Corbynism and the Sanders project were perceived in many ways as kind of shortcuts, right? They were like, we don't have to do the hard work of building up social forces in society. We can just take over the state and then use the state in the ways that we want to use the state. And of course, that was always very naive. But it was also important because how on earth are you supposed to coordinate a massive transition away from the use of fossil fuels without having the coordinating power of an institution like the state. Um, it just seems un- completely and utterly unfeasible to be able to to imagine um, to imagine that without doing what we're doing right now, which is just shutting everything down. Maybe that is another route that socialists could take. Maybe if we, you know, if people decided that they wanted to organize into revolutionary forces and just slowly shut down capitalism piece by piece, that is something that would stop climate change. The question is what impact it would actually have on living standards of working people is, I think, another another issue. So, I mean, I think, you know, the climate crisis actually, in many ways, um, gives us a, a, an answer to that question as to whether or not we need to focus on acquiring state power. Because if we don't, then there's absolutely no way that you get to the point of being able to decarbonize quickly enough across the entire economy and indeed across the global economy. Because, of course, you also need power over international institutions in order to transfer resources from global north to global south to facilitate the transition to decarbonisation there. Without that, it's hard to see how it's going to happen quickly enough. So my final question um, has to do with the formulation that you already mentioned a few minutes ago, the famous uh, formulation from, I guess, Engels and Luxembourg, you know, socialism or barbarism. This is something that many of us like to reference. and, and, And you recently just mentioned it a few minutes ago. So that's my question. Um, do you do you see us at a moment historically now where it really is socialism or barbarism or socialism or fascism? In other words, um, there seem to be, and maybe it's the majority of people, I don't know, people laboring under this, uh, I don't know, illusion or at least a desire for things to just kind of go back to normal, right? That Trump, the aberration of Trump or the aberration of Brexit or whatever it is, has up, you know, upended everything, caused all of this chaos. And if we could just excise that tumor, we could kind of return back to normalcy. And I think it's pretty self-evident that there is no such thing as returning to normalcy. So my question to you is, are we at such a conjuncture now where there is no returning to the norm, to to the previous normal, and it truly is socialism or fascism. Yeah, I think this is this is the parallel to the kind of reaction um, amongst the working and middle classes uh, in 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 the sense of the role that it plays um, in uh, in both our electoral organising and and broader politics. In the 
the idea that it is possible to go back to normal if everything just stays as it is has become such an important force in you know this kind of centrist politics that has had this weird resurgence in recent years. I mean, you know, the heyday of centrism is the pre-crisis period when basically it is possible to argue that things just need to stay the same. Everything broadly needs to be left as it is because things are getting better. And, you know, if we just carry on as we are, then your children are going to be better off than you. But that dream obviously is decimated in uh, in 2007, 2008. It was shown to be the lie that it was all along. This was an unsustainable system of uh, asset price inflation financed by debt. So now we get to the point where, okay, you know, most people think, right, we need a dramatic transformation in the status quo. They could be divided into socialists and you know, xenophobes and nationalists or fascists or whatever you want to call them. And then there's a big chunk of people in the middle who are still laboring under the illusion that actually things don't need to change. Centrism is still stable. All we need is moderation. You know, we need to go back to the nice politics where people weren't being mean to each other on the internet and that's how we're going to you know solve all the problems we face today and really you know all that is is just people burying their heads in the sand as people who've had very comfortable lives for you know the most of their for most of their lives thinking oh god wouldn't it be nice if we could go back to that time when i wasn't challenged by anyone and i didn't have to answer any difficult questions you know that is obviously the logic that that is most prevalent in the media amongst like all the liberal commentaria, amongst like the vast majority of people who have some sort of control on on power. And, you know, the real battle, I suppose, at, that we've seen take place recently is between those liberals, well, the, what, uh, you know, an English description of liberal and nationalist reactionaries. Socialists kind of haven't really figured as much in that in that battle. Um, and actually, you know, I think, as I said at the beginning, they're much more likely to... Um, find a way of accommodating nationalism than they are to find a way of accommodating uh, accommodating socialism. But I think there are also, uh, you know, a, a number of people who, who do have this sense that maybe it is possible to go back to normal, but who are increasingly beginning to realise that that isn't the case. Um, and our being able to convince those people that, you know, we are living in this moment of socialism or barbarism is going to be really, really important. And actually, a big part of this, you know, I talk about this a lot in the UK because I have the data that shows that basically from 1997 onwards, uh, before 1997, there was no correlation between class and whether or not you voted. And a lot more people voted. After 1997, people stopped voting at the same time as they withdraw from all other forms of politics. So from the labor movement, from you know social movements, from all these other things. And you get a very depoliticized working class. This is watching the working class that actually withdraws from politics. One of the biggest challenges, as opposed to converting reactionaries or convincing liberals that you know they need, actually need to face the music, it's just re-engaging the huge number of people who just look at our politicians and say they're all the same. What's even the point in, you know, uh, voting or more than that, actually using my time to join a union or to, uh, you know, protest or whatever. Like those politically disenfranchised people are, I think, probably the majority if you look at the size of all of those different groups. And the challenge for the left is actually convincing people that A, it's important enough to re-engage and that B, there's enough of a benefit to be derived for them from doing so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, 
yes, there are reactionaries. Yes, there are liberal centrists who are who are seeking to kind of bury their heads in the sand. But in many ways, the coalition, um, the class coalition that that socialism has to be built on, is also composed of this massive silent majority of people who are just sick of of everything, sick of it all, sick of all the politicians, sick of all the um, the the false promises and feel disempowered and like there isn't really a lot that they could do to change their situation and providing those people with a sense of their own power by trying to engage them in in movement building and um and kind of a constructive form of politics is i think the biggest challenge that we face today no doubt about it a monumental challenge and it's very important that we take it up uh just as important as it is that you all get yourselves a copy of grace's new book stolen how to save the world from financialization grace blakely has been my guest today grace thanks for talking with us you can follow grace on twitter at grace blakely you can see her work in tribune magazine as well and of course the book grace thanks so much for coming on the show today thanks so much for having me eric it was great to talk to you Listeners, thank you as always for your continued support, and we will chat again next week.